0: Well, let's take our Bibles in hand and one more time, turn to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Now, just to review, the 20th chapter of Luke is an account of the final days of our Lord's earthly ministries, just before his arrest and ultimate crucifixion. Now, earlier in this week that is described in Luke 20, Jesus rode triumphantly through the Eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem to the applause and affection and admiration of thousands of Jewish people who had gathered in the Holy City to participate in the Feast of Passover. And every day of that week, Jesus would return to the temple grounds and spend his day teaching to those who were gathered there. However, he was constantly hounded by his enemies, groups like the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the Herodians. And members of each of those groups were intent on doing away with Jesus And their mutual hatred of him bound them and united them together. Now, Luke records three events, three attempts here in chapter 20 by Jesus' enemies to catch him in a verbal trap. That is to try to badger him into saying something that could be taken to the Roman governor and laid upon Jesus as an accusation. Now, the first of those attempts is recorded in verse two here in chapter 20, when the Pharisees asked him by what authority he was doing these things. That is, I take it the miracles, the teaching, and specifically cleansing the temple. And Jesus asked them a question, what about John the Baptist? Was he a man of God or not? Well, the people uh, loved John the Baptist and Jesus knew that. And so they wouldn't dare say anything negative about John. And so they remained silent. And Jesus followed that pointed question with a couple of parables. The first was the parable of the vine growers where a landowner had put in charge of his vineyard, some renters. And at the end of the growing season, they were to settle up and a portion of the proceeds was to go back to the landowners. And so he sent his servant, his slave to collect And the vine growers beat this man and sent him back empty handed. And this happened on three more occasions until finally the landowner says, I will send my son. Perhaps they will have respect for him. And of course, instead of respecting the son, they murdered the son. And of course, Jesus is prophesying his own death. And those renters, those tenant farmers were his enemies. Those who had set themselves up as leaders of Israel. And then he says, you have rejected the cornerstone and this cornerstone has become the chief cornerstone upon which you will be dashed into dust. Now, the second attempt is found in verse 22. When a group uh, came to Jesus, they were really spies, likely paid by the Pharisees to ask him a political question. The question was, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? People didn't enjoy paying taxes in that day any more than they do now. And so they thought they had Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. If he says, no, don't pay your taxes, they would run to the Roman governor and say, this man is causing insurrection. If he said, yes, you should pay your taxes, he thought the people would turn on him and he'd lose his popularity. And Jesus said an incredibly wise thing. He called for a denarius, a Roman coin and says, who's image and inscription is upon it. And they said, Caesar's. So Jesus said, then render unto Caesar that which is Caesar and unto God, the things which are God. Again, they were stunned into silence. And the third attempt is found in verse 33, when the Sadducees, those who didn't believe in anything supernatural, they only held to the first five books of the law, the books of Moses and they denied the existence of heaven, hell, angels, or demons. They asked Jesus a question they had likely asked in debates hundreds of times. They told this far-fetched story of a woman who had a husband. The husband died without leaving her any children. And as was the Old Testament law, her next brother, his next brother in line, took her as his wife. This happened six more times until she had buried seven husbands. Their question was, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And again, they thought they had Jesus this time on a familial dilemma that uh, it would be impossible to to sort out that knot in heaven. And so they dismissed the possibility of a resurrection. And, And Jesus told them, you don't understand either the scriptures or the power of God. He rebuked them because their lack of correct interpretation of the scriptures. And again, verse 40 says, from that point on, his enemies were so flustered that no man dared ask him anything. But as we saw last Sunday, Jesus still had some questions for them. His first question was deeply theological and it had to do with the person and nature of the Messiah. Really was he just a man or was he more than that? And Jesus asked them to interpret the 110th Psalm in which David, the king, says, the Lord said to my Lord, come sit at my right hand. And he said, how can David call someone his Lord who is his future descendant? And the point is, Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is more than a man, more than a prophet. He is God in the flesh. And now our text today, Jesus makes application of that doctrine by proving his omniscience and by warning his disciples about his enemies. So let's read now Luke chapter 20, verses 45 through verse 47, the end of chapter 20. Scripture says, and while all the people were listening, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and chief seats in the synagogues, and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses, and for appearances' sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation." May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of this, his inerrant word. Now, the title of the message today is, Spiritual Distancing, How to Avoid Becoming a Religious Hypocrite. A few weeks ago, I offered to you a few of the reasons why Jesus' enemies hated him so much, why they were determined to put him to death. Well, first of all, there's just good old fashioned jealousy. Jesus had stolen their thunder. These Pharisees and scribes loved to roam about the villages of Israel and have the common people come to them with their theological questions. And then they would hold court. And this gave them status and importance in their society. And so Jesus came along. The people were no longer running to the Pharisees with their questions. They were taking them to Jesus because he spoke, the scripture says, as one having authority. Well, some of his enemies were not so much jealous as they were angry because by chasing out and cleansing the temple of the money changers, he had cost them income. And if there's anything that would cause a greedy person anger, it's costing them income. But then there is the Pharisees, his primary enemies. And I think the primary reason that they determined to get rid of Jesus is that he embarrassed them by calling out their religious hypocrisy in a very public way. And it goes all the way back to the 11th chapter of Luke. Many months ago, when we studied the 11th chapter, Let's turn there now, holding your place in Luke 20. Turn back a few pages to the 11th chapter of Luke. And I want to read to you beginning in verse 37. And you're right. Remember that the setting is that Jesus has been invited to be the guest of honor at a luncheon, which was being placed in the home of one of the Pharisees. And Jesus used that occasion to blast the Pharisees for their religious hypocrisy there would have been many people from the outside who weren't given an invitation, listening in at every available door and window. And this is what the scripture says, Luke eleven thirty-seven. Now, when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. And when the Pharisees saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, "'Now you Pharisees clean the outside "'of the cup of the platter, but inside of you, "'you are full of robbery and wickedness. "'You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside "'make the inside also, but give that which is within "'as charity, and then all things are clean for you. "'But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint "'and rue and every kind of garden herb, "'and yet disregard justice and the love of God.' but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. One the lawyer said to him in reply, teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, woe to you lawyers as well for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you for you build the tombs of the prophets and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you build their tombs. And for this reason also, the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill and some they will persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation for the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hinder those who were entering And when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and questioned him closely on many subjects. Now hear this last verse, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. They were so embarrassed by Jesus' accusations of their religious hypocrisy that many months before, they actually carried out their plot. They had determined to kill Jesus. They were going to do it. They simply needed the right moment. And so just hours before the execution of their fiendish plot, one more time here in Luke 20, Jesus publicly skewers the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. He does so by warning his disciples to stay away from these guys because they have a deadly disease. And that disease is religious hypocrisy. And so our outline today, the first thing we see is the warning And when I say the warning, it's a warning to stay away from these scribes. Now, as we go through life, there are warnings everywhere we look. We get in our car to go to work and we're bound to see a flashing yellow light tells us to slow down, take caution. We come home from work. We turn on the evening news and scrolling along the bottom of the screen is a weather warning telling us to take shelter. Uh, We get ready to go to bed and we get our medicine that has been prescribed by our doctor and there's a warning label on it, not to take too much. Uh, We get up the next morning to clean the kitchen and we get a cleaning agent and right on the bottle there's a warning not to ingest it. There are warnings all around us. We need warnings as humans because we are not omniscient. If someone didn't tell us that the bridge ahead is washed out, we would merrily drive into the river. We are not omniscient, but Jesus is. And because he's omniscient and because he loves his sheep, he often warned them of danger. Now, Jesus warned his disciples of a number of things, but they really fall into two broad categories. The first category is warnings about internal dangers. That is by virtue of our humanity and our fallen nature, uh, we have to watch out for us. And so he says things like blessed are the poor in spirit, warning us against the sin of pride. He illustrates the sin of pride through parables. He tells a parable about uh, a man who was a farmer and he had a great harvest. And he says, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my small barns, I'll build bigger barns, I'll put my feet up and I'll take my ease. And Jesus called that man a fool because that very night his life was required of him. He says. Avoid the sin of pride. He told his disciples constantly, because they were always bickering about which one of them was the greatest, that the greatest in his eyes was the greatest servant. And another thing he warned them about internally was uh, materialism and greed. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even one who has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And again, he told many parables of people who had much in this life, but were eternally impoverished, the most famous of which is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man ate sumptuously, the scripture says, every day. And this poor beggar, Lazarus, sat outside of his gate and would have loved to have the crumbs off his table, but uh, he didn't even have that. And they both died. And one went to the bosom of Abraham, and one went separated from God in hell. And he shows this vast gulf that wealth is not a sign of one's right relationship with God. So he warned them of materialism and greed, but then there are dangers outside of themselves. Those who would seek to do them harm because of their affiliation and association and union with Christ. He warns them specifically in Matthew seven fifteen about false teachers. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That is, they give the appearance of being one of you. But the truth is they have designs on ravaging the church for their own enrichment. In John chapter 10, Jesus says there's a a great difference between a good shepherd and a hireling. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That is he puts their needs first, as Jesus modeled for them every day of his life. And then there is one more external danger. And that is he warned them constantly against becoming like the Pharisees. And the way he said it is beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Those of you know anything about baking know that you have to insert yeast to make the dough rise, but it doesn't take much, just a little bit left overnight will spread itself throughout the dough and it will leaven the whole lump. Jesus says, don't even have a hint of the way the Pharisees operate in your life because before you know it, it will take over your life and ministry. And that is exactly what he's warning against here in Luke chapter 20 in this last section. He's saying, beware the scribes and the Pharisees. But what exactly are Jesus' disciples to look out for as it relates to Pharisaical behavior. What are the symptoms, in other words, of religious hypocrisy? Well, look again to verse 46. He says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. And so the second point of your outline are are the symptoms. We saw the warning, don't be like the Pharisees. And here are the symptoms to guard against number one are are soft hands. He says they like to walk around in long robes. People who were hardworking people in the ancient world, when they had work to do, would gird up their loins. They would take the hem of the longest part of their robe and pull it up in front. And then they have a belt that they'd tuck it into so that they would have freedom of movement. The scripture says as Christians, we're to gird up the loins of our mind. That is, we need to be ready for action. The the call to be a Christian, and certainly the call to be a leader in the church is not a call to laziness. It's a call to hard work. The scripture says, again, that we're to give honor to whom honor is due, especially those who work hard in the word. And so a person who manifests spiritual laziness is a person to avoid because they're well on their way to religious hypocrisy. Not only did the Pharisees have soft hands, they had restless legs. It says they loved to walk around in those long robes. That is to be seen of men. They like to go out to where people were gathered so that people would stop what they're doing and admire them. That is, they wanted to be recognized publicly for their piety. They were constantly drawing attention to themselves. That's not the way of humility. And that's not the way of Christ. Not only do they have restless legs, scripture seems to indicate here that they have sensitive ears. Says they love the greetings in the marketplaces. They they are constantly having a hand to their ear to hear their titles spoken in public. There goes the great rabbi. There goes the teacher. That they wanted people to know them as somebody. And they insisted on recognition for whatever they did, that they were sensitive if someone denied them that recognition they felt they rightly deserved. But then also it seems to be that the Pharisees had very refined taste. It says they want the chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They wanted the best of everything. They walked into the house of worship. They want to be ushered to the best seat in the house. They were invited to a party, they wanted to sit at the host table. They insisted upon it. Now you compare that to the book of James where the brother of Jesus says, we're not to do those things in the church. We're not to give preferential treatment to the rich or or famous. Someone comes in who is wealthy. We don't usher him to the front and tell the poor person to sit in the floor. It's not to be named among Christians because it was named among the Pharisees. Not only did they have refined taste, they, they seemed to have itchy palms. They were greedy. Now I know if you're not of a certain vintage, you, you won't recognize that phrase. I asked my wife, did she use that term, itchy palms, to signify a greedy person growing up? And she said she'd never heard it. But there are some of us who remember that when a person was greedy, we would say they had itchy palms. And so we know that because the scripture says in verse 47, these Pharisees devour widows' houses. Now, it doesn't mean they ate them. It means that they somehow ingratiated themselves into the lives of women who had lost their husbands to get them to give them a portion of all of the estate that the husband had left to see that she made it to the end of her life. And unfortunately, things have not changed very much. There are charlatans on every channel and the people that they appeal to most are those who are most vulnerable, those who have a family member who has been diagnosed with a terrible disease or widow women who are anxious uh, about their present condition. And and they are promised that if they will show more faith and the way you show more faith is to give more money to them, that then they will have a guaranteed of a blessed life. And Jesus rebukes those with itchy palms and tells his disciples, don't you be like them. And then Probably the, the definition of hypocrisy is these Pharisees were those who had two faces. Again, in verse 47, they devour a widows' houses and for appearance's sake, offer long prayers. Well, Jesus, I don't think is rebuking, spending long periods of time in prayer. He's saying, what is your motive for that? If you're doing that publicly to appear more pious or godly, Don't do that. In fact, he says that a number of places when he taught his disciples to pray, he gave us what we know as the Lord's prayer, but he also gave us instructions to to not make a scene. Don't blow a trumpet and say, look at me, told the parable of the Pharisee who stood up in the midst of the temple and said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. Don't be that person. Stay far away from religious hypocrites so that you're not infected with their disease. Now let me add my warning to our Lord's here, not that he needs any improvement, but the application for believers now 2000 years on from this week in Luke 20 is that we need to be very careful when it comes to assigning any person, particularly someone claiming to be our brother, or sister in Christ with the title of a religious hypocrite. I think there are those who are so outrageous in their hypocrisy that we need to name names sometimes to warn our congregations. But the primary purpose of Jesus' warning here, I think, is is to tell his disciples to make sure that there's not a beam in their own eye. Remember what he said earlier in the gospel of Luke? He says, make sure that before you point out the speck in your brother's eye that you have the beam removed on your own eye so that you can see clearly to help your brother. And so he's telling them the warning signs and the symptoms of the disease of religious hypocrisy so that they can diagnose it when it starts occurring in their own lives so that they can stop it before it goes too far. And so speaking of going too far, That's our third point. What is the prognosis for a person who lives this way? That is with soft hands, restless legs, sensitive ears, or fine taste, itchy palms and two faces, a religious hypocrite who's gone to that extent. What is the prognosis if they don't repent? Well, it's very frightening. Jesus gets right to the point when he says in verse 47, the very last sentence, these, that is those he's described with those symptoms will receive greater condemnation. And that word condemnation I believe means God's ultimate wrath that is hell. So another way we could say it is they are doubly damned. Romans chapter eight, verse one, on the other hand says, for all of us who are in Christ, we don't have to fear condemnation. There's therefore no condemnation no fear of wrath or hell for those who are in Christ Jesus. But these are people who have evidenced by a lifetime pattern of sinfulness and religious hypocrisy that they never knew the Lord. He's saying these people receive a greater condemnation. And that word greater is a word of degree. I know some of you were taught earlier in your life that there are not degrees of punishment that you either go to heaven or hell but the Bible indicates very clearly that there are degrees of punishment. One of the questions that I often get as it relates to evangelism, people will say, what about that innocent person in deepest, darkest Africa who never gets a chance to hear the the gospel? And I always point to Romans one. And I say, according to the scripture there, that person doesn't exist. There is no innocent person, not in, just deepest darkest Africa, but anywhere on planet earth, because the scripture says that God has put a knowledge of himself through nature and written his law upon our hearts. Therefore, man is without excuse. But there certainly are those who have greater light and greater exposure to the gospel. And I think a higher stewardship. The Bible says to whom much is given, much will be required. Jesus said, those who have been given much and deny it will receive many stripes and the others will receive fewer stripes. And so he's saying these Pharisees are going to receive, are going to receive the strictest punishment for rejecting Jesus. So what were the Pharisees given that put them in this position? Well, they were given the law. In fact, they held themselves up as, as sort of the protectors of the law. Remember the word Pharisee means separate ones. They had designated themselves as the upper echelon, the religious elite, those to whom people were come to, to have their questions answered. That is they took on more authority than had been granted. And so they therefore took on a high responsibility and accountability. Many of these had direct access to Jesus. They had seen him with their own eyes, raise the dead. They had seen him feed the thousand with just a, a little bit of fish and a few loaves. Yet they steadfastly, stubbornly refused to bow their knee to him. They had seen his signs and and wonders. Many of them likely had heard the voice of God declare on the day of his baptism, behold, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. They had been given opportunity after opportunity to repent. And I take it that Jesus is giving them one more opportunity just hours before his death. Mark tells us there were some in that crowd who Jesus knew were not far from the kingdom. And so here he is graciously, once again, calling them to repentance and faith. Because as Jesus noted earlier, one day, the day of judgment, there are those who were religious hypocrites who are going to come to him with confidence, thinking they're gonna be welcomed into heaven. And he's going to say, depart from me, you cursed and workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. What a tragedy. But there's good news. We've seen the warning about the reality of this disease. We've seen the symptoms to watch out for. We've seen that unless something happens, the prognosis is dire, double damnation. But, But here's what we need to hear. We need to hear the cure. What is the cure for religious hypocrisy? Well, religious hypocrisy is a sin. And there is only one cure for sin, and that is faith. And repentance. Faith and trust in Christ's substitutionary atonement on the cross and bowing to his lordship and authority, turning away from sin and towards Christ. The scripture says if you confess your sins, I take that including a life of religious hypocrisy, he will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. How do we know that's true? Because some of these Pharisees did ultimately repent. I mentioned last week, Joseph of Arimathea, who we believe came to faith in Jesus. Nicodemus who came to him under cover of darkness in John chapter three, traditionally is taught that he became a believer. We know for sure that a man who once described himself as a Pharisee of the Pharisees became one of the greatest Christians the world has ever known, none other than the apostle Paul. And you say, well, pastor, look, that that happened 2,000 years ago. There are no Pharisees today. Well, they may not recognize that nomenclature. They may not call themselves literally a Pharisee, but uh, there are people who have the Pharisaical tendencies and characteristics. Those who don't work hard in the ministry, those who are content to let others exercise their spiritual gifts while they go along with the momentum that others create they're glad to accept the praise of the people but loath to accept any criticism there are those today who refuse to gird up their loins and, and go to work in the Lord's church there are those who are never satisfied where they are their, their legs are restless they always want a higher position and something with more glamor, and that's more in the spotlight. There are those who are greedy. They have itchy palms. They use their positions to ingratiate themselves to the most vulnerable in the church so that they may separate them from their money. There are those who demand recognitions and titles and attention. I'm hesitant to tell this story because I'm so embarrassed that another pastor would do such a thing. But early in my ministry, I was planning a Bible conference and I had been helped greatly by the preaching of a particular pastor. At the time, he was not well known, now he's very famous. And I wrote him a letter and asked him, would he be willing to come to the church that I was serving to preach? I said it would be an honor if he would. And he did not respond immediately, but some weeks later I received a letter in the mail from his address and it was uh, really an application. And the first question on the application was what will my honorarium be if I agree to come speak at your church? As a young pastor, I was devastated and crushed that that would be the first question that someone that I believed to be a man of God would ask. And uh, in my youthfulness, I took a red pen and drew a circle around that question and wrote out to the side, disinvited and sent his letter back to him. There, there are Pharisees in the world today. There are Baptist Pharisees in the world, but but let's really get really close to home. If you've been a Christian any length of time at all, particularly if you've ever been in a place of leadership in the church, it's likely if we're honest, that we have detected some of those same symptoms in our own lives. I don't know of many people who set out to make shipwreck of their life in ministry, but many do. And there seems to be a pattern among Christians who make shipwreck of of their ministry and of their faith. One is a lack of transparency. That is, they, they stop having people know what they're doing on a day-to-day basis. There's an absence of self-examination. The scripture says that we're to examine ourselves regularly, test ourselves, our motives, reasons we do what we do to see if we're in the way. Um, There's an absence of self-enforced and imposed fences in our lives. That is, uh, we, we no longer put those barriers in our life that would help us to avoid even the appearance of evil. And then ultimately, it's an absence of accountability. There's no one in our life, including our spouse, who has permission to ask us hard questions about our walk with the Lord. And and, and that's a quick tutorial on how to wreck your life in ministry. Just remove those four things from your lives. And the Pharisees, many of them, and, and again, we don't want to paint too broad a brush and say that every Pharisee was like that. That's not true. Some of them, perhaps many of them, ultimately came to saving faith. But Jesus is saying, watch out for these people whose pattern of life is like the one he's described. He says, because they're infectious, I take it. That's what he means when he says, avoid their leaven. Don't get too close to them because you'll become like them if you're not very careful. And so the title of the message today is spiritual distancing, We've been told for three months to socially distance, lest we infect one another with the COVID-19. Jesus says to his disciples, spiritually distance from those who claim to be speaking for God, whose life is hypocritical. So friends, perhaps the Holy Spirit has convicted your own heart, not of someone else's hypocrisy, but, but of your own. I've had that experience this week. We, we likely all stood up to pray when our heart was not right with God. Perhaps if you teach a Sunday school class, you, you've taught a lesson when your heart was cold to the things of God. Well, the message for you is to repent. Don't let sin master you, is what Jesus said. Whatever masters you will be your master. These Pharisees that he was pointing to had let the sin of greed and pride, avarice, master their lives. Jesus says to his disciples, don't let it happen to you. So what should we do when we recognize the first symptoms and the first signs of religious hypocrisy in our lives? We need to confess it. Confess it. Tell the Lord your heart wasn't right. He knows it already. Remember, he's omniscient. He knows everything at once. Jesus said of these Pharisees at one point, they profess me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. God has always been more concerned with the heart than the external appearances. That's what separates us. One of the things that separates us and makes us different from God. The Bible says that man looks on outward appearances, but God Judges the heart. And when we speak of our heart, we're speaking not only of what we do, but what we think, what we look at, what we listen to, what we value. God knows our heart. And so today, if your heart is, is manifesting the early stages of religious hypocrisy and the Holy Spirit has convicted you of that today, and pointed it out to you, thank him profusely that he did not allow you to go to sin's logical conclusion, which is double damnation, because you have the spirit of God living within you. If you're born again, he points out that sin to you. The book of Hebrews says all discipline doesn't seem good at the time, but when you've gone through that discipline and you come out the other side, you are thankful for it because God has graciously kept you from destroying your life, your family, and your ministry. Now let's go to the Father in prayer and thank him for his goodness. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that the Bible is full of warnings. First and foremost, it warns us not to reject the gospel. It warns us that without something done about our sin problem, our eternal destiny is hell. Father, I thank you that the means you use to warn us is your word and through faithful teachers and preachers. Father, we want to honor those to whom honor is due today. And yet Lord, since time immemorial, there have been imposters. Those who are motivated by ego and greed personal ambition father give us wisdom to be on the lookout for false teachers and prophets but lord we also know that uh, many of the dangers that jesus warned us about come from within when we become lax in the spiritual disciplines father when we become content and self-satisfied thank you for those warnings that you give us lord because if you didn't warn us if you didn't stop us, if you didn't discipline us, we would run headlong into the raging river of hypocrisy. Father, I pray you'd search our hearts, our minds, our lives today to see if there are areas, even within Christians, that are displeasing to you. Father, maybe there, there's times where, where we have gone through the motions and yet our heart is far from you. And Father, I pray you'd rekindle that first love that we once had. Father, I pray we would turn, return to the, the first things and do those things, Father, that led us to that strong and vibrant and vital uh, walk with you that we once enjoyed. And Father, I pray you'd send awakening and revival to our church. I pray that when we come back together, there would be a renewed emphasis on personal holiness, accountability to you and to one another. And Father, I pray that you would use our church in this next chapter of its existence in a greater way than up until this point we've been used for your glory and for your namesake. And we pray all these prayers in and through the strong name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast.